Hello, and welcome to Tommy Ginders. And as ever, this is the programme where we wonder about things, Tamagindus meaning I wonder in Manx. But since today is Remembrance Day, we thought we'd do things a little bit differently. What's it like to find out that one of your relatives played a vital role in either the First or Second World War? We will find out. It is Remembrance Day, of course, it is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's it is one of those days that always creeps up on me a little bit, and always again, I suppose it is a day, literally, where it is a day of remembrance. It's a day of solemnity. It's a day of paying respect to those who have given their lives from what we take for granted, I guess. It really is, and I think also what is happening at the moment is our notion and understanding of war veterans is changing, and throughout this program, we are going to hear um, somebody talk about their grandfather who fought in the First World War, who lied about his age to get into the war, which just seems incredible. Uh, we are also going to hear from um, somebody from Conquerberry School who's been finding out about his granddad who fought in the Second World War. But we're also going to hear from a Gulf War veteran just about what it was like for them going to war, dealing with the aftermath, and even still now, what, what are we, 20, 30 years later, how it still has such a huge impact. So... Remembrance is, of course, so important to remember the First and Second World Wars. They were said to be the wars that would end all wars. But we really need to keep in mind, I think, that we have people right now from the Isle of Man who are fighting around the world. It's true. And, and again, it has been more in recent years, I think, perhaps as World War One. Obviously, we've long since celebrated 100 years. World War Two. very few people every year. Fewer and fewer people who remember, who are there, whatever the case may be. And yeah, perhaps more attention than coming to, as you say, more recent conflicts, because certainly through all my life from the first three quarters of my life, it was all basically you just thought World War One, World War Two, And you forget really remembrance is for all those, whenever it might have been, who have fallen fighting for their country. Absolutely. So let's start, though, with World War One and... What we did to commemorate Remembrance is ask for photographs of your heroes, so people in your family who might have fought in any conflict at any time. And we got some wonderful photographs sent in, and a lot of them were First World War and Second World War photographs. And you know what? It just shows you that when you look at war memorials and those thousands of names that are on them, these people are all so much more than names because they all have a story, they all have a family, and their actions during a, a certain time also have an implication as well. So it was really difficult trying to, to pick through all the stories because I desperately want to tell all of them. And actually, we are going to be running a much longer term project on the theme of remembrance. But I want to uh, turn to Jill Skinner now, who got in touch to tell us about her family member who fought in World War One. My mother's father, uh, William Billy Jones, was born in 1898 in Leeds. When the First World War broke out, he lied about his age and joined up, basically. Um, looking back at photographs of him, he, he was a, a boy. However, as we all know, that at that time, um, they didn't necessarily differentiate or discourage the, the maybe patriotic fervour that there was, the promise that everything would be over by Christmas, the excitement. He was from a very poor part of Leeds and a very sort of challenged background. 
And I think this was an opportunity for him and he saw it as doing the right thing. Um, he was, we know from his records, that he was shot uh, in the early part of, of the uh, First World War and then spent two years in an unnamed military hospital in London rehabilitating. Uh, he was shot in his leg. I understand that there was parts of his uniform in his in the wounds in his legs right up until until my grandfather died. Um, but they patched him up and after two years they sent him back out and we know this time this was to Passchendaele where he was gassed. Um, I don't know whether it was mustard gas or chlorine gas um, but we know that he was um, understandably very poorly afterwards um, and that ill health dogged him all of his life and he actually died in 1953 so he was still in his 50s when he died and my grandmother my granny always said that she felt she was a war widow and he moved over to the Isle of Man later on because actually he had issues with his breathing presumably after that gas attack yes. and he felt it was cleaner air over here was better for him yes he did, yes, he, he did. Um, by that time my mother's family were living um, in Hounslow in West London uh, my grandfather was an engineer working on developing Heathrow Airport and my eldest aunt married a Manxman a man from from Andreas called Herbert Nettleton uh, and during the Second World War, my aunt married my Uncle Herbert. And um, when my grandparents came over here to visit her, because she, she moved over with her husband to, to the island, it, it was during the Second World War, they came over to visit. And my granddad apparently found he could breathe better. And f somehow he they took a huge leap of faith and bought a small holding, um, Dreamscary Farm, up in Mackled, and he worked on that and, and farm, farmed it um, until his death in 1953. And as you say, he was still a relatively young man when he died. He was, um, and he the ongoing health issues included, um, he had several heart attacks, he always had problem, problems with his breathing, um, and he, his legs still gave him issues from from the being shot uh, as a teenager. What does it mean to you, knowing now what you do about your grandfather William Billy Jones? That he must have been an incredibly resilient um, and optimistic young man to go through all of that. Um, and then he met and married my granny, my, my grandmother, um, and he, they had six children, um, four of them lived, they lost the first child and then uh, the fourth child. Um, but despite that, he never gave up and he was um, a tough, um, perhaps a bluff Yorkshireman, but he was a strong character and we do feel we, we laugh in the family about the Jones genes and that we are all quite sort of feisty. That old question, as I said to you, Beth, if I could invite anybody round for dinner, living or, 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 or dead, it would always be my granddad. What does remembrance mean to you now, now that you know a little 
of his story. It's recognising and remembering and giving consideration to those who believed they did the right thing for all of us. And I believe that um, even the military, uh, the more recent conflicts, I think there is a great belief amongst those young men and women that they left wherever, whether it was um, uh, Bosnia or Iraq or, or Afghan, um, that they did a good job and left it a better place. And I think we need to support that, but not to turn them into victims. That was Jill Skinner talking about her maternal grandfather. The idea of him joining the army when he was 15. I mean, if you see the photograph of him, we have put together a little slideshow, which is uh, on Manx Radio's social media pages, and there's a photograph of him. He does. He looks like a child. He's just a boy. And you just can't imagine that mindset, somebody so determined to go out there and fight for their country. Oh, it is incredible. And and the age, you say, you look at the people in the First World War who were lying, and I think they probably did it in the Second World War as well. Spitfire pilots in the Second War, I think average age was something like 19 yeah. or 20, something along those lines. You go and have this sort of you know training and then you go straight up in the plane after sort of learning to, you know, from scratch sometimes. And again, I think we've spoken on this on Tammy Ginders before, if you go up to Jerby, and go to the church there, into the graveyard and around there. And, of course, that was a, an RAF base. And I think there were a lot of Polish and Canadian, from memory, pilots who were training over here. And you see there's quite, I can't remember the number now, but a frighteningly large number of young men who died. They didn't actually get to war. They basically died trying to learn to fly the planes in a hurry. And that they were over here, you know, doing flying. Presumably they'd come from, like me, having no knowledge of how to fly a plane. You're given really a crash course as quickly as you can, and then you're up there not just trying to fly across the sea or something, you're up there expecting to be shot down unless you can shot, shoot someone else down. And a lot of these uh, young young men didn't even get that far and that they you know, were trying to learn to fly and died in flying accidents. And you think, ooh, yeah, it, it really is a, an eye-opener. It really is. When it comes to remembrance, I know a lot of schools around the Isle of Man do a lot of work around this time to promote the idea of remembrance and how important it is and I went up to Cronkin Berry School and met with some of the year five and six pupils there and this is such a great idea they've been learning about it through members of their own family who might have been involved and when I, I got to speaking to, to some of these young people they had no idea that they had a war hero in their family until they started doing this and I just want you to listen uh, to this young man who I think articulates it so beautifully and just listen to what he says at the end of this, because if it doesn't give you a lump in the throat, not much will. Hello, I am Charlie and I am in year six. Um, I have my great granddad's um, war medals. Um, we don't know much about these. Um, we know what they're, what time they're from, what time frame it was the Second World War time frame. And one of them we know is the defense medal. Um, he was, a Royal Air Force pilot um, and he um, was part was on the Lancastria while it was sinking they were eating lunch um, which they were having steak um, they were eating steak toast orange juice 
lots of luxurious food. Um, when they ate, when they were eating, um, it took them a second to realise that um, the Lancaster had been hit by four German bombers. Um, so they had to. So my great granddad went stripped down into his underwear, um, jumped over the sea, and while the Lancastria was leaking out oil, uh, he was getting shot up by German planes and had to tread water for four hours until a until a boat came to get them. After British planes came over to go and refuel, but they saw them and then got uh, planes to come. And then I have this. It was kind of like a magazine for them a nice quick something for them to read while they were in the air um had lots of poems uh picture stories that other soldiers would write um so yeah that's what i've got wow and how does it feel having learned a little bit about him and what he did it feels amazing to figure out that he survived all of it went through it and still stayed and just did it he did everything he could and it just feels awesome for me would you like to go to war um if it if it meant having to fight for my country yes what an incredible young man he's in year six at Cronkerberry and I have to say all the children I met while I was there were absolutely wonderful if you're listening to late lunch you'll have heard uh, another of the interviews on there and we are hoping to put them all online as well so we'll let you know when they're up and running but what a great way of learning about it I think through your own family experience it makes it so much more real and hopefully keeps those memories going and just listening to, to Charlie there as well I, th- I think it's you think young generations coming up now don't have that same level of devotion maybe to their country. And, and I was watching something on uh, a documentary about The Last Tommies, a brilliant thing. I think I've seen it before on TV the other day. And, yeah, you see the young men, they said, oh, we're all young and foolish and, you know, again, 15, 16, lying to get in. And he said, well, it was all about doing it for the country, wasn't it? And there was that great patriotism. And they were going out for almost an adventure, which, of course, it wasn't. It was just horrifying for so many of them, but they didn't care. And one of them said, we just had a job to do and we're doing it for our country and we're proud to do it. And yeah, that that feeling is still very much alive in some of our young people. Yeah, which which I, is, you would never have guessed. No, well, I would have never guessed. I wouldn't have done. I was really surprised. I would, you know, I was just expecting him to say, no, I wouldn't want to do it. But um, on time again, this, this series, we are doing a little section where we're taking a look at objects which mean something to us that are in our family. We're going to carry that on today because you've brought something in. I don't know whether to be a little bit scared right now. Yeah, I mean, it's one that I've, I've had for years and I don't know the whole history to it. It is a knife. It's still quite a sharp knife. It's one you wouldn't carry around without getting arrested, I don't think. Um, and I inherited it from, who was I? It was Uncle Jim to me. He was actually my mum's first cousin, but always an uncle. I know he was in the Navy. He fought out in Egypt and whatever. He picked this up during the war, and he always told me it had been made in a prisoner of war camp somewhere from a crashed aircraft. Mm. And looking at it, I think it's right. There's aluminium at the, at the hilt. There is some, what looks like ivory. There's some perspex in the handle, and then I'm fairly sure it's the wood from a propeller. And I think he said it was from the first war. Maybe it was the second war. Can I, I don't have know. a look? But it's um, it's me. very well built. Um, I'm sure the story is true. Uh, sadly, he, he I don't think he ever told me any more about it. Uh, and when he died, I inherited it and I've always kept it. But it's just sort of been one of those things. He said, oh, yes, this was you know, made in a prisoner of war camp. Um, I don't know which prisoner of war camp. Um, but, yeah, it was. And I think it was after the first war is what he told me, although I could be wrong on that one. But it's always whenever I see it, I always think of uh, Jimmy. I always think of lots of uh, still have a few photos of him, you know. 
on the in his uniform and out in Egypt and such like fighting out around there made me think of some of my other relatives as well Uncle Ken who's a Japanese prisoner of war he ever, uh, rarely spoke about it um, my wife's father who was um, a medic he was in the final year of medical school when towards the end of the war when they liberated Bergen-Belsen when they found the scale of the atrocities of course they, they contacted the, you know, the frontline troops contact saying that we're going to need dozens and dozens of medics and of course the British government said well whistle we haven't got them what we can do is send a coachload of final year medical students and my wife's father was one of them straight from medical school to Bergen-Belsen. Doesn't even bear thinking about, yeah. does it? I and, mean, you know, we've got similar stories in, in our family of people who were in the war. My um, dad's dad was in Burma. And, yeah, it's just that moment now where I really wish that I'd taken the time to, to speak to them, but it's it's one of those but things, rarely isn't would. it? And that's the other yeah. thing. It was very difficult to get people to speak a lot about this. It really was. You are listening to Tamagindis on Manx Radio with Howard Kane and Beth Espy, and we're looking at the theme of remembrance today because it is November the 11th. And I mentioned at the start of the programme that something we seem to be focusing more on now, quite rightly, is the modern-day veteran. Have a listen to this. I'm Chris Brown, known as Charlie Brown. That's a, it's a legacy from being in the military. I was an aircraft engineer for 40 years, spent 20 of the other years in the Royal Air Force before moving here to the Isle of Man in 1999. My father was an aircraft engineer. He worked in industry in Yorkshire at, a, at an aircraft factory. And my mum had done. Uh, between them, they had 70 years-ish between them in aircraft manufacturing. So I was always going to... I never wanted to be a pilot. I knew I didn't have the academic... Uh, excellence to be a pilot. Uh, I always wanted to fix aeroplanes and I made plastic models of them and hung them up on the ceiling and shot them with air rifles and shoved fireworks into them and all the things that boys do. I was a cadet as well. I left the Air Training Corps in 1979. The night before I handed my uniform in at the cadets and joined the Air Force the next day. Went to started basic training. Uh, that was at 16, 16 and a half. And I was a very, very uh, young, you know, young for my age. I was, I was a, a, a slow developer. So yeah, it was a bit of a shock to the system. I remember being forced to shave when I actually didn't need to shave for about another four years. And although I was mad on aircraft, I'd never had a motorbike. I wasn't as mechanically minded as I thought I, as I thought I was. So yeah, trade training initially when I was when I was sixteen was was quite a steep learning curve. But I was interested in it, so so I tried my hardest. Initially, my first couple of years in the Air Force was relatively stable, you know, in a, a little quiet um, training base for air crew in Yorkshire. And then I came onto, uh, onto the fast jet bomber fleet, onto Tornadoes. And we were all, at that time, you know, the Cold War in the, in the kind of early mid-80s was at its height. Uh, and, and Germany was the front line. You know, the, the Tornado was part of our nuclear deterrent. We almost treat it like a game. You know, we knew it was very, very serious, especially when it involved you know, nuclear weapons. But uh, it was, if the SAS is who dares wins, we were who cares who wins. You know, we, we honestly, you know, if we launched those aircraft, it was, we, we didn't have to worry about seeing them back in or we wouldn't even be there when they came back. But it was something that we, we always knew was there, but I don't think we ever really thought it had happened. I don't know. Being a Cold War warrior and then... We we were out in Canada when the news came through that Saddam, you know, that Iraq had uh, invaded Kuwait, and uh, we saw the American response within days. But we never thought that we would be involved. You know, tornadoes went to war for Armageddon, and that was it. And then by the time we got back to Germany, they were already painting our our airplanes pink, ready to go to the desert. And uh, yeah, well, I deployed with with the first the first deployment out to Bahrain, and. Uh, 
it was quite it was quite worrying. We you know we knew that this could really you know we we were suddenly going to do what we were paid for, um, or within a few months. Um, it was it was it was a it was a big learning curve, uh, and especially the way we had to treat our aircrew because the aircrew they were they were going to be the guys that we would send to war, and we knew that that uh, our our tornadoes would be at the forefront of it. There was no training for that. You know, our training was to fix aeroplanes. What you learn, you know, and I'd been doing it for, for more than 10 years when we went to war, is how to treat, how to treat the crew. You're almost a social worker for pilots, and you, uh, you, know, you handle them correctly. You know that the, the first, when you send them to war on the first night, that they've never done it before. And you try to treat them as normally as possible. You know, you don't make a big dramatic show of seeing them to war. You just play it pretty much down the line. In the RAF, our guys were flying multi-million pound aeroplanes and we were the specialists on how to fix them and what to do if something wasn't working correctly. So you've got to have a more open relationship with them. You've got to be able to say, hey, come on, mate, you've got it, you know, you've got it that set wrong. Let me do that. Let me move out of the way while I give something a kick. And it's a total trust both ways. We had to deal with loss uh, at our own base. We lost a crew in a training accident just three days before the war started. Um, we lost another aircraft over the target, um, well, four days into the war. The loss of aircraft from other bases, who, if we'd been, you'd been working on, on that aircraft type for a lot of, for many years, you knew them anyway. So you heard that, you know, you heard the names come through. Um, you usually knew who they were. I, I'm really glad, you know, the, the famous two faces in the Gulf War, John Peters and, and John Nickel, who were captured and, and tortured by the Iraqis, I'm, I didn't, John is a, is a friend of mine now, but I'm glad that I didn't know him at the time. He was on another squadron at another base, and that would have upset me to see him on TV like that. And it would have upset me to see uh, any of our guys on, on TV like that. That was Charlie Brown. You know, I learned so much from that 20 minutes or so that I spent with him. And we are going to pop a video on the Manx Radio YouTube channel because there's so much more uh, to hear from him. And particularly what happened once they realised that war was over. Thinking about the longer lasting effects, both physically and emotionally. But also it's great to hear what support there is for veterans over here. If you want it, I think that's the key thing. If you are looking for friendship with people who truly understand what you might have been through, then the support is out there. And I was just listening to that, and amazingly, I was thinking, I think I knew the person he was talking about, the uh, person who died two or three days before the Gulf War broke out on a training accident out uh, in the Gulf. And uh, I'm fairly certain I know exactly the exactly the man he was talking about because I was at school with him. Oh, my goodness. Mm. It doesn't even bear thinking about, does it? And that's that's it, isn't it? That's the reality of war. And as it goes back to what we were saying right at the start, that... You might see names and whatever on the television and newspapers, but they are so much more than a name. They are a, a person who has a story of their own, a family, and the implications of what they do, whether or not they, they come back from war, are really huge, aren't they? And also, it always makes me question, I'm too old now to go to war, I guess. I'd be in Dad's army, but uh, <laughs> yes, when you heard sort of Charlie speaking earlier on, I've often thought, could I have done that? 
could I, you know, would I have been able to do that? Would I have been brave? I don't know that I would. And everyone said, oh, you do. We know when, when the chips are down, you do it. And I'm thinking, or you just crack up. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But it's been fascinating speaking to all the people uh, that we have done for Remembrance. And I did mention this longer term project. We are going to be looking at Remembrance. It's not just focused on November. So if you have any stories that you'd like to share with us, please do get in touch. You can find the contact details on the Manx Radio website. It's been fascinating talking about Remembrance. It's always worthwhile every year. Never let anyone tell you it's not. We'll be back. Same time. Same place. Not next week, though. The week after. The week after. Thank you. The week after. See you then.